listening to the Double Dose Podcast with Dr. Trish and P.A. Jeff. Hello, Dr. Trish. Hi, Jeff Todd. Welcome. Episode number two, the Double Dose Podcast. Tell everybody who we're talking to today, Dr. Herford. Introduce our special, very special guest, two special guests. He is so special. Dr. Matt Bays, a gentleman I am fortunate to know. Um both professionally and sort of outside the professional world. I really do enjoy you. Um, Thank you. And I should let you do the introduction. You spent two weeks with this lovely woman and now you're kicking her out. Yeah. So I've been blessed to have a, to host a medical student. Kara uh, is here from uh, Kirksville College of Osteopathic Medicine. She's on a two week rotation that ended at uh, one o'clock today. You kicked her out. She failed. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Fair. Yep. So she's going into Carol, what career? You talk. Uh, um, I'm planning to go into family medicine and then sports medicine after that. Great. What a great. And he didn't change your mind after all of that. He did not. It was a great two weeks. Oh boy. Great segue. Dr. Bays is fellowship trained in primary care sports medicine. He specializes in sports medicine and regenerative orthopedics. Trained at SLU, right? Correct. And the U.S. Navy. Correct. And then did your fellowship in sports medicine at SLU as well. Yes. I do my research. Yeah. I got it. That was, that was flawless. I, <laughs> I want to hear about the Navy part. Yeah. Did you have a health professional scholarship? I did. So uh, you seem to know what that is. That's, uh, for the listeners, that's probably the best way to go to med school when you don't really want to pay for it. Or if you don't have money. Yeah. 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 Which yeah, is yeah. the case. So, yeah. So, um, what you do is you apply for that scholarship as a, uh, college senior. And when you have the acceptance letter, they will then interview you and you could go Navy army or air force. And they're all very similar. The terms are all the same. And what you do is you are paid as an active duty, uh, Oh one during med school, uh, in active reserves. So you don't have to wear a uniform. And, uh, I mean, not, why wouldn't you, right? walk around in that ice cream man suit. Well, we walk around in uniforms all the time in medicine. That's true. Good segue. Uh, Anyway, back to that. And then when you're done, you do a residency and then you have uh, four years of payback uh, for the specialty I went into. So I had to pay back four years and then you're free. So where were you stationed per se? I was, I did my residency in San Diego, Balboa Naval Medical Center, which was amazing. Yep. Largest military medical hospital in the world. Just loved my time there, but it was weird. I felt like I was tired and just crabby for three years. I don't really remember living there. I thought they gave you a lot of time. Like my buddy did this and he had like two hours off in the afternoon to go work out. As a resident? Yeah. Your buddy, your yeah. buddy lied. I don't, I'm not he's, sure what he did. He's an orthopedic surgeon. Now, yeah, I don't know. Maybe uh, not me. Uh, but then I paid back um, at uh, Naval Hospital Beaufort, South Carolina, which is attached to Paris Island with the Marine Corps. That's nice too. Yes. Wow. So you were an officer though. Mm-hmm. You're consider- yes. Okay. Did you consider staying in the military at all? No. I was quite happy. Thank you very much. In fact, I told this story yesterday. I saw one of our, our second to last patient yesterday was a 42-year-old Pilates instructor uh, woman who went to the Naval Academy from St. Louis and just was an absolute butt kicker. And she was so great. And she had arthritic knees. And I'm so excited to treat her because, you know, I got to tell her my stupid little Navy stories, which are nothing, right? And she was an officer, like surface warfare officer from the Academy. That's amazing. And while we were talking, we had a, a mild... 
uh, urgent situation in clinic and uh, with a with a patient who is um, having some issues is what I'll say. And, uh, and we want to hear. Okay. And so there's a security concern because I had a patient who had made some threats to our medical assistant that were very unkind, uh, involving herself and others. And so they run in and they tell me, and I didn't want to leave the room because Kara and I were interviewing and checking out and, you know, totally had a plan for action. And this woman was totally jazzed a treat and I had to get up and leave and go, well, we have a security concern. And, and, uh, and, Kara said that like they were all, they felt very safe because they were in the room with a female naval officer and, <laughs> and she could have just kicked anyone's butt. That's amazing. Yeah. Huh. So you couldn't have done that since you were a male I was just a officer. doctor. Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't have been okay. able to kick anyone's butt. All right. So she just had definitely better training. Yeah. Oh okay. God. Yes. Well, I, we laughed when she went to the Naval Academy. It was like hardcore. And by the way, she played rugby at the Naval Academy for women. And I told her that when I went to officer's training school at uh, Newport, Rhode Island in July of 1996, we brought golf clubs. I mean that, and we sailed in Narragansett Bay as a sailor. Oh, you yeah. would appreciate that. You know, absolutely. That's, is that the, like the home of us sailing? Would you say? I would say, Bay? yeah. Newport. Yeah. Amazing. Mm -hmm. Your yeah. training involved golf clubs and sailing and hers was like four years of hell. Yeah. So did you have to get up early? No. I mean, yeah, sure. But we like would work out. Clock. Yeah. You would <laughs> to get the last piece of bacon before they took the breakfast away. No, you would run in formation. You would run like a mile and a half in formation. You could only go as fast as the slowest person. And this was a training program for professionals. So it was like pastors, nurses, doctors, so there were um, lawyers, some slow people. Oh my God. And there were people as old as I am now, like mid forties who would come in and horribly out of shape and we would just kind of trot around. So all the in shape people would then go work out, you know? Interesting. Yeah. I'm envisioning like Navy SEAL training Correct. in here. The exact opposite. <laughs> yes. They don't have white uniforms that fit these guys. <laughs> right. Yeah. It was pathetic. My favorite story coming off the bus, they, they kind of shock you into active duty. So you take a bus from the airport and you're with all of these other naval people and but there's a gunnery sergeant from the marine corps on in front of the bus with the Smokey the bear hat and you're all just kind of quiet because you know it's like a bear that's ready to pounce but he hasn't said anything yet right and so we're all just kind of minding our p's and q's and the bus stops and he stands up and i mean it's it's like just out of full metal jacket right or whatever military movie you want he's like get your ass together you have 10 seconds to get in line and get in formation. We don't know what in line or formation means. <laughs> so we grab our luggage and it's a complete free for all. We just pour out of the bus onto this lawn. I can see him with his Lily Pulitzer bag. <laughs> yes. Yes. I have like my Gucci clutch, right? So we get in line and I'm standing next to this woman whose name was Bunny. I learned later and she was going to be a nurse. Her name was Bunny. And I wouldn't know her last name, so I won't out her, but she started crying and the Gunnery sergeant walks right up there and is like, and it's always, they address us as sir or ma'am because we outrank them. So the funny thing is all the prior enlisted would be like gunnery sergeant move along and that's all you have to do. And they, they obey your order. But the rest of us are so intimidated. We just let him yell at us. So the woman's crying. He's like, what's wrong with you? And she's like, I left my luggage on the bus. And he's like, get on the bus and get your luggage. I mean, I was just like, I wish there was a film crew there for this. Oh God, I enjoyed it so much. And it was like 10 minutes of yelling. And then that was it. 
Which is funny because this poor woman is going to have to make decisions the rest of her life. That one seems pretty obvious. Yeah. Go back on the bus. Right. And when they say get your luggage, why did she leave her luggage? <laughs> it was like she crapped her pants in the first opportunity. Funny. I hope you enjoy running the florist department. <laughs> we are out of roses. What's going to happen? I don't funny, know. Funny story. Bunny now CEO of major medical hospital organization. <laughs> yes. All that man she runs about, mercy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you might know, you might know her as sister bunny. She's in charge of mercy. <laughs> so you do your training in the Navy and then you come back to St. Louis and right. Yes. And then I am a medical student. Yes. Medical student here and then training in sports medicine. After residency, after residency and after paying back time in the Navy. Got it. Wow. So you were, that's a lot. You've had a lot of training. I mean, one year extra is the fellowship, but I, the, the only difference is I came into fellowship after, you know, being chief of pediatrics at a Naval hospital for four years. Yeah, so I was a little different. bit more trained than people who came out of residency, but I didn't know anything about sports medicine really per se. I was doing circumcisions and saving babies lives. See, I told you we'd talk about that. <laughs> that was uh, like that, uh, what did they do that on Jimmy Fallon? They have those bets of, can you get this word into the interview? Yeah. <laughs> and then the word is circumcision. <laughs> so congratulations. I am not a moil, but I was, I was trained as one. Yes. <laughs> and then you do your training in sports medicine. And then you went into, you went straight into private practice, right? I did. I worked a uh, hundred feet down the hall at the orthopedic center of St. Louis, working for Dr. Paletta, Gross, Miller and Milne. Uh, loved it. I was so lucky to be hired by them after like rotating as a fellow and um, spent almost three years in just what I called just a high end, almost a surgical ortho sports medicine fellowship. Cause I got to learn why they do what they do when they do, why won't they operate? And it was really ideal for me. It was, it was a steep learning curve, but um, learned a ton. In, in my limited experience, I would say that's probably the biggest difference between a lot of primary care sports medicine people and the orthopedic side is when, when I used to do orthopedic surgery, we'd get these referrals from some primary care sports med guys, but they would say, Oh, they need, they need a meniscus. They need a meniscectomy. And that's why we're sending them to you. But yet they would leave out the part of, Oh, they're actually bone on bone, tricompartmental osteoarthritis. And you'd be like, well, you don't, don't fix that. They need a total knee. And so sometimes there's a big disconnect between what surgery needs to be done and why we do it or more, why don't we do it? Practical versus literal from a textbook. And I think you can expound on that and you can talk about, if we want to talk about regenerative medicine later is, you know, we don't, yeah, thank you. you. No, that's it. Thank you. All right. All right. Uh, No, it's, it's who do I treat and why, and when do I know not to treat? And that was from my experience. And then also, when I know not to treat, who am I sending them to? And what am I asking them to evaluate the patient for? And hopefully I've got all of those questions answered so that when it's gift wrapped to the orthopedic surgeon, they say yes or no, they don't have to figure it all out. And that, that really is a good lead in to the, to the next question, which is you do orthopedics and sports medicine. And then, but you, now your specialty is really evolved and you do a lot of regenerative orthopedics. And I, I think you should really kind of explain what that is because that's a whole different mindset. 
It sure is. Um, so the goal at, you know, at the end of all of these pathways is a, is a common denominator of getting a patient well. And in, and in orthopedics, it's getting a moving because we're all athletes. You know, Jeff, you are an athlete. In my own way. Yes. And, and Trish is Table a, tennis. a sailor. Pretty decent at pickleball. I is, sail. Are sailors, is that a gender neutral term? Is it? Hey, sailor. Like um, yes. women and men are both sailors? Yes. Okay. So I wouldn't call that. It is a sport, but of course it is. Dennis not, Connor. Yes, not um, n- not in the way I think of sports. But well, some yes. shoulder and elbow injuries. I when you're love turning that. Yeah, jib. if we're if we're racing, yes, but I don't. Do not that when you're just out on a Sunday afternoon. No. Out. Yeah. Unless you include you know lifting your glass of wine yeah. from the. While you're healing, you gotta get which the takes Yeti some cooler. balance and yes. Unless you run aground and you got to pull your boat out. Correct. You could break your prop shaft. If you're on Lake Carlisle and you, and you to, run into that silo in the middle of the lake. Yeah. That one I wouldn't hit. It's just that when the Army Corps of Engineers doesn't keep the water level up high enough yeah. and I'm turning. Hypothetically. Might, hypothetically. Ouch. That sounds expensive. Break my prop shaft. Yeah, well, Matt, look, funny story we were about just talking how expensive about broken, that is. We were just talking about a broken prop shaft earlier. <laughs> yes, we were. The funny thing about expensive in sailboats is whenever they pull your sailboat out of the water and they go, ooh, we're going to have to call somebody <laughs> in Chicago. That's, <laughs> yeah. Before that, the, the look and the, oh. <laughs> Let me make a phone call and then we'll get back to you in two to three weeks. From the phone call. That sounds painful. <laughs> it was. All right, back to the point. So yeah. our, our goal is to get someone <laughs> moving and well. So regenerative medicine in musculoskeletal orthopedics came about in probably between 2005 and 2010 was the birth. And actually my partner, David Crane, was one of the first three in the country to really kind of pioneer this. And so it was... Sim- to really break it down it uh, very simply is how do you harness the body's ability to heal? concentrate it and put it where it needs to go. And that's it. That, that is the one sentence answer. And, and we could talk for four hours and not scratch the surface on what that means and how we do it. But what we're doing is we're taking stem cells from your body and we like to use bone marrow as our source primarily. And then we will take blood for platelets and that's called platelet rich plasma or PRP. And what you do is you think of the platelets have the growth factors um, that they release, which guide the healing. And then recruit stem cells. And we're also injecting stem cells, which are the building blocks that can create new tissue. And based on the local area, those stem cells know what to grow. So if you put it in damaged tendon, it grows uh, the type two collagen of a tendon. If you put it in fibrocartilage environment, it will grow that fibrocartilage, hyaline cartilage in that hyaline cartilage. So it's an it's a beautiful system. I think it's uh, ordained by higher power. I'm a firm believer in God and that we're all designed. And this is, gr- we can talk controversy over that all day long because I love that subject, but um, our body is meant to heal. And uh, all we're doing is speeding that up and making it more efficient. So do you need, do you need to combine stem cells with PRP? And I ask that question because you see, PRP clinics popping up all over the country by themselves? Yeah, great question. Um, So one of the things I just said was that platelets attract stem cells. It's one of the, their cytokines does that. Um, So if you're in a blood rich environment, like a really healthy tendon that might have tendonitis without tear, I think there's an argument you could do PRP alone uh, and have a good outcome. And there's 
there's some good studies on that, of course. Um, but if you're in a poor blood environment, poor blood vessels, um, either an old disease tendon, oftentimes in an unhealthy patient, smoker, diabetic, heart failure, any one of a litany of about 20 factors we pay attention to, um, or in a joint where there isn't blood flow, then we need to deliver the cells, which are stem cells. So they do work, you know, one in one A. And where do you get your best results? So if you had to list your top five um, outcomes for procedures, where in the body are you talking? Number one would be knee osteoarthritis. And that's where our data is, is focused on right now. So we have are about to publish our five-year um, prospective case series data. 176 patients are absolutely killing it on um, various outcome measures in orthopedics. I want to use big words, but I want to keep this uh, use big words. Listenable. Well, there's various outcome measures like Coos and Womack and Oswestry and all these things. All these are is just different ways to measure outcomes and validated so, ways to measure yeah, outcomes yeah, for studied. specific conditions. Yeah. So our patients did very well at year five compared to pre-injection pain and function scores, and and it held up over five years, and we're really excited about that. So NEOA, short answer, is our number one. Number one. Number two? Um, a ligament, um, high-grade partial ligament tears. So ulnar collateral ligaments and throwers. Uh, we work on a lot of professional and high-level college and high school baseball throwers. Um, same thing for ankles, same condition, different body parts. So like ankle sprains. So we had a really interesting patient today, by the way, I learned how to swear in South Sudanese today. Um, is that a giveaway? I don't think so. I think you should just, you know, demonstrated that ability and see if anybody kind of picked up on it. Okay. I'm going to have Kara do that. Late, at some point. Kara, he still has not because signed off on your two weeks. So this is it. This is your final grade right here. Sudanese, Kara. If you can't remember it exactly, just like make the noise. No pressure, Kara. He already said you were good under pressure. I believe it was something like coma. Coma? Yeah, it was real close to that. And that was FU mm. in South Sudanese. Oh, great. Now we're going to get pulled off <laughs> of iTunes. We, now you just have Sudan. to say Brandon. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> <laughs> no, that's let's go. I didn't want to do the whole phrase because now you definitely are banned. Oh, <laughs> are we going to have to rewind that? Can oh. I not say an F and then a U? You can say whatever you want. Okay. Yep. You'll just clean it up, Jeff. Or not. It's so anyway, <laughs> again, back to the uh, question. So part high grade partial tears and ligaments. So, um, not yet fully unstable joints, but needing to bear the load of an athlete, like a thrower with an elbow with the ulnar collateral ligament or a jumper and runner with an ankle ligament, which is what we treated today. Um, I like a lot of intramuscular tears. So we see a lot of in season athletes tear like a, a quad right in the middle. Um, and it's real obvious when it happens, they know exactly what happened, even though they're not a doctor, they like, I tore my quad and they come in and they've got a hematoma and we can put cells in there and heal that up really quickly. So I've had three of my son's high school teammates during this season where we just won the district championship right now. So we'll, we'll play the quarterfinal in 10 days. And, um, we had three players during the season heal with, uh, cells, what are they doing in training? He had three quad tears. Right, exactly. 
That actually was a question I had. Thank you for pointing that out. Um, I think they go so hard and have like during the season, they're playing two or three games a week. Do you think it's that one sport mentality and the over training issue or is this just. I know what you're saying and I, I do agree with that, but I also think, you know, I don't know if there's a per se training error in that. Like when I had my um, ankle patient, I could look at his feet and say, you have such high arches that you were bound to be unstable in your ligaments. And I could point to that. So with these quads, I can't exactly point to one thing they do that's stupid because they don't like punishment run during the season in practice. Our coach is really smart. I think they just push really hard. And they're also, you know, it's a pretty successful program. So they've learned from those before them that you ignore pain. Are we soccer players? Yeah. And you don't want to complain of pain. So you just keep playing. You know, most people will be like, ooh, I kind of pulled my quad. Maybe I'll slow down. Is it their dominant leg? Uh, most often it is actually their plant leg. Interesting. Yeah. So they'll do it on their left if they're kicking with their right. Cause there's so much force transferred right. forward during that kicking motion. There you go. Great. Qu- that was a really good question, Trish. I love sports. She's smart. <laughs> I haven't heard much from you, Jeff. He's not smart. No, he's I'm, <laughs> I'm a facilitator of the conversation. Uh, sometimes it's good just to take a step back and not be the center of the conversation. I think this is going really well. I do have one criticism. Yeah. I have really large ears and I, th- I feel like my headphones are only covering part of my ears. And I wish everybody could see it because it really looks like your ears are popping out of that. No, <laughs> they are. They're not. I've ordered some 10 gallon buckets for the next time that Matt's on. Yeah. So we're going to make him a regular. (laughs) So, okay. We covered that the best conditions. We've we've only, we got three. three. She's going to wring the last two out of my, my body. Okay. So two more, Mm -hmm. two more. Let's go degenerative. I like um, shoulders, a combination of osteoarthritis and the glenohumeral joint or the shoulder joint itself. And then you always get that degenerative rotator cuff around it. We saw one of those patients back today. We had a same age as me, 46 year old, uh, a carpenter laborer who had really wicked osteoarthritis of the joint and kind of some ratty looking, but not torn tendons. And he's 70% better eight weeks later, still working. Obviously. So when you said ratty, when is too much osteoarthritis or too much arthritis or degenerative change and make your regenerative approach ineffectual? Um, ineffectual means doesn't work. Okay. Thank Yeah. I was, yeah, no. God. That might not even what be a your, real word. No, it is. Reader's Digest. Yeah. There's two there? F's in a row. There's not many words that have two F's in a row. Okay. Saffron. There you're going really deep Saffron. Now. <laughs> okay. Anyway, Kara, think of another one while we're talking. Um, uh, I think, so there's tons of factors that go into answering that question and it's not just the x-ray and that's interesting. I'm glad you brought this up because when people find fault in how Blue Tail Medical Group works, and this is less and less over time as we've gotten you know, more and more of a reputation and good outcomes from orthopedic surgeons, um, they would look at an x-ray and be like, I can't believe you guys are gonna treat that joint. But a lot, there's always a reason that we're doing it. Number one, we're seeing the outcomes. We know we can help them. But we're also not telling these people we are going to heal your shoulder that has horrible arthritis. No, absolutely not. We break down a shoulder into three outcome measures. I always make it real easy. It's range of motion, strength, and pain. And a lot of times, let's let's have a hypothetical. You've got a 70-year-old 
active retiree woman who might want to play some pickleball and do some gardening, right? She's not going to the gym. She's not a carpenter. She's not an overhead thrower. So her range of motion is not paramount for her. The only, the only reason she needs to get her arm above 90 is to put the dishes away, right? Put her clothes on, put a coat on. Yeah. Yeah. Or yeah. Don and doff a garment, which is really hard actually. Right. Motions don't work in a podcast, do they? So I'm moving yeah. my arms around. <laughs> You've been moving a lot this whole time. Yeah, I have ADD. Uh, so, so range of motion, if the patient doesn't have much range of motion, like my hypothetical 70 year old woman, I'm not going to promise her that we'll get that range of motion normal again. She wants to treat uh, that strength deficiency, which in her is probably pain. So our right. goal is to get her pain down. And if her cuff is still intact or just tendinopathic, but we can help that good physical therapy is always coupled with what we do. Um, her outcome measure is how do I hurt when I sleep? How do I hurt when I play pickleball? And am I, you know, can I pick my grandbaby up? And those outcomes are attainable. So we're not saying, gosh, you have to get that humeral head to rotate 50 degrees out because that, that spur on the under aspect of the humeral head bumps into the socket or the glenoid every time. We, it's still going to do that. So we just really, really educate our patients on expected outcome. What variables are we looking at? And we get those outcomes. So that, so if she said, let's, let's flip the question. I really want to do an overhead serve in doubles tennis because I, I'm one of these people that plays four days a week. Right. And I need to get my arm over my head. I'm nope. Can't help you. So then I just say, go get your shoulder replaced. And by the way, you're still not going to be happy. I'm sorry. Honestly, because they oftentimes don't get their range of motion back. What kind of recovery time in your hypothetical 70 year old patient who's really looking for pain control? So the pain always goes up for about 36 hours. So we have to manage that acute onset of pain. And we can talk about um, THC all you want because you're the guru of that. And I'm, I, I am not, but I, I talk about THC every day with my patients now. And I really enjoy that. But um, so I talk about alternative ways to manage pain for the first 36 hours, we still will use hydrocodone because it's just effective. And then we just educate them. I just say, Hey, you got to be aware this is coming and you know, ice and we don't want them to take anti-inflammatories for the first couple weeks. Um, their function should get back by one week. So whatever they had before the treatment, they should get back by one week after all that pain is gone. And really what's happening in that first 36 hours is the stem cells and platelets release and all those growth factors go haywire in the joint and it causes a really pro-inflammatory reaction and that can hurt. So that involves some painful inflammation um, and that washes out by about a week. But, uh, and then they start physical therapy two to four weeks later. Um, at, you know, as they're getting their motion kind of like back to normal and improved a little bit with physical therapy and their strength to improve, the pain is coming down from the action of the stem cells and platelets. Um, if we're trying to remodel tissue fully, that takes 300 days. If let's say you're trying to treat a tendon that's been partially torn and Dr. Bayes, when is this tendon fully normal? That's 300 days. If you're talking about like tensile strength and elasticity and all these really big words, um, but is the tendon functional long before that? Oh yeah, that tendon's functional at eight to 12 weeks, probably. 300 days for an MRI to look normal? Probably longer. <sighs> Boy, um, we try not to look because yeah. the MRI lags so much. Right. Um, I, I bet an MRI wouldn't look. In fact, I can tell you that uh, pretty big partial Achilles tears and patellar tendon tears. They don't look normal for years. Yeah. We explain that to patients a lot. They, they want to know 
you know, why don't you re MRI my neck after you do this and that? And I go, cause it doesn't, it might not matter. It's your symptoms are what really dictate the story. So what do you do if you, like, we just had this discussion about PARS defects and they were like, well, are we going to re MRI this patient at X amount of weeks? And I said, but why, what if it looks really bad, but she feels like a million dollars and she has no pain and everything else. And I said, we don't know when that MRI is going to look normal. And, and, and so there's a lot of patients that don't understand that's exactly why we don't do serial MRIs because we don't know what, we don't know when they're going to look normal yeah. and it might not matter. Like what you're saying, they may feel a hundred percent and have all their motion, have all their strength. And yeah. So when is this hypothetical woman playing pickleball after your treatment? Uh, we see them back at two months later, eight weeks, and that's two thirds of the way into their initial real big healing phase. So we see them at about two months and then about three months later. And so I would start um, below shoulder uh, aerobic activities like pickleball at two months if their pain is good and their strength is good. And then I would be advancing them towards the three month mark, see them back at three months and probably release them from care at that point. And do they need to come back? Um, only if there's a problem. Um, I do want to bring up the subject of a booster treatment. We need to talk about that because that's in the lexicon now. The booster treatment is a second PRP. I like the th- maintenance, not booster. Booster makes me think of Pfizer and Turbo. Moderna. Oh, oh, yeah, in this day and age. Yikes. Mix and match, right? Right. Like that makes sense. Why don't why not mix and match? I don't care. I'm sure it's fine, but it makes me nervous. Just I'm, mix and match your I'm vaccines. currently mixed and matched as of last night, actually. Good for you. And other than this twitch in my eye and the fact that I peed myself seven times a day, I'm doing okay. Life's all right. I noticed a little subtle Guillaume Barre coming off of your sweater, but I'm no. sure it's nothing. <laughs> That dro- Can you wipe, wipe that drool off your chin? <laughs> I'm sure that's fine. No problem. You've slurred I see, your speech I see your times. heart enlarging now. <laughs> Gosh, this is an irreverent podcast. Hopefully our audience is sophisticated enough. Well, Joe Rogan. <laughs> now that's a great podcast. That's what I was going to say. Are we going to do a long form? Are we going three and a half hours? So like when I drive to I think Nashville. It really depends on how much you entertain Jeff and I. <laughs> and probably we're about done. Yeah, We're wrapping it up now, people. You haven't even got to number five yet. <laughs> I know. I'm trying to think of number five subtly. <laughs> so, all right. I'll let you come back to number five. But I, I do. I have questions regarding regenerative medicine and. Uh Oh, now Jeff is involved. We also have to revisit the booster or the maintenance, but yes, carry on. Touch on the booster now. Go ahead. Okay. Well, because I want to close that that chapter because let's say you're 60 to 70% of where you want to be, which is never perfect. We don't tell people we're going to make them perfect. So we need to adjust expectations a lot. Um, Between two and four months after a stem cell with PRP, a second dose of growth factors is a really good idea to boost healing, which is where the term booster came from. You're, think of it this way. You're showering those stem cells with a whole nother dose of growth factors and cytokines from those, uh, those platelets. So it's really, really helpful. And our data, our five-year data, what we need to do now is really break it out who got a booster and who didn't and which group did better. And that's what we need to do next. That's not going to be this first paper. So if that's the case, is there any way to tag stem cells to see how long they actually survive in the environment you put them in? Oh yeah, that study's been done. That's a moldy imaging and yeah, for sure. That study's been done. And they are there. 
three months later, oh, yeah, six for months sure. later. They um, migrate to the host tissue that's damaged through um, cellular signaling within 24 hours. Absolutely. So I've had patients come back, let's say rare swollen knee, 10 days after a treatment that sometimes happens. And I have no problem draining the fluid from the knee and the patient will be like, wait, don't drain all the stem cells. <laughs> and it, you just explain, look, they're, they're not in the fluid. They're in your joints. So. Right. Yeah. All right. So I think that's the booster, Jeff. So here's my question. It's not about regenerative medicine per se. It's a little bit about blue tail specifically. What makes what you guys, and you've touched on this, what, what makes what you do at Blue Tail and the regenerative medicine you offer different than a lot of the regenerative medicine we see offered around town? Because we we know the difference, but I'd like to hear it from the horse's mouth. Like, for instance, I'll give you an example. The Maybe the chiropractor office that's offering stem cell injections and they're X amount of dollars and they're, they heard them talked about at the Holiday Inn versus what's going on at Blue Tail Medical Group. Yeah, thank you. Um, you're like giving me the opportunity to talk about my favorite subject. This is great. Thank you. Um, and and by the way, we should touch on kind of the FDA before we're done. I'd love to talk about that. Definitely. Um, so why are we better? It would be the easy question to my egotistical or, brain. Yes, or, or you can talk about what would make a regenerative clinic better than others. Yeah. Or just make it about you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I think it's all in the approach and all a patient has to do is spend 20 minutes in their initial consultation with us to really, really see this. And so, first of all, every patient is getting weight bearing x-rays, let's say for knee osteoarthritis as an example. So a lot of clinics are working off just a single x-ray view or whatever, like what does the joint really look at, look like? And, and so that is a metaphor for truly, 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 what is the diagnosis? What are the pain generators and what are we going to do to fix it? So the first step is identify the pathology very precisely. The second step is address the health status of the patient, find who you can treat and who you can't. So we talk a lot about uh, health age versus chronologic, chronologic age of a patient. So we know that stem cell number and activity drops not subtly after age 85. But we talk to a lot of 65-year-old patients who are really chronologically 90, and I treat them that way. And I'm going to be hard-pressed to treat them with stem cells because they don't have active, healthy stem cells from their, you know, we pay attention to their diabetes. What's your A1C? And if they say nine, I, I, I talk to them a lot about what that means. We talk about cardiovascular health. We talk about um, what medications they're on because the the body is not just a series of closed off rooms. Everything is communicating, right? So if they're on a statin drug for 40 years for their cholesterol, that is having effects on their joints and tendons. Um, we talk about uh, social uh, st uh, factors such as smoking and toxins and um, alcohol use, um, big fan of moderate alcohol use, but boy, if you drink too much, it's unhealthy. And there leads a whole nother litany of factors. We talk about BMI. We talk about the angle of their joint based on their x-ray. So there's a ton of factors and we're really close to actually, um, coming up with this factor called the RMI of a patient, the regenerative matrix indices. And so there'd be all these variables that we score and it comes up with a number 
And that number is either a yes or a no on, are we going to treat you? And furthermore, if it's a yes, how good is your number? And so how good should your outcome be? So it's a predictive number. Absolutely. And that's, that's this awesome. is, this is a window into Dave Crane's brain. This is his idea. And we're working on that right now. Um, so that's really important to when we see a patient and we, I briefly touched on, we adjust their expectations for outcome. So we never tell a patient that we're going to heal their osteoarthritis because that's patently false. Um, that is a chronic progressive condition that you can turn down, but not off. And that's why we don't think like for knee osteoarthritis, we were really happy to see our five-year data. If we get to 10-year data, which I hope 176 patients you know, keep filling those surveys out. That number, I don't think will still be high. I don't think it'll be as good and we will have had to treat them again, or maybe they'll get their knee replaced. I wonder if you'll be able to predict when that quote booster will be necessary for that aging. Based on the arm. Based on their. Sure. Yeah. No, I think that number will, you know, lend validity to what we do, which is the constant fight that we're in still in our, in our sphere. Like I remember 10 years ago when I first started doing this with my partners, uh, Dave Crane and Kristen Oliver, we had certain orthopedic surgeons in St. Louis that told my patients I was going to jail because I was a fraud. Like they would tell me this. And so I thought that was number one. I thought it was kind of funny and, and I was, took it as kind of a compliment, but also a put down. I was like a little, that's offended. a put down. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, but they cared enough to actually <laughs> mention a little that. put down. Yeah. 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 Your I doctor's a fraud. Nice. <laughs> so maybe I was in jail and I'm out or really I never did go to jail. That was that Navy. No, no, I'm kidding. I never, I never went to jail. Um, so now we've worked so hard on the validity of what we do that we actually get referrals from the one man that did that has moved on to a different town, but his partners at, he's in jail. at a large <laughs> university here. He's uh, doing regenerative medicine now. <laughs> right. Right. He's doing store-bought. Yeah. yeah allergenic right. cells. No. Amnion. Yes. So uh, anyway, I forgot the question, Jeff, at this point. What makes, what makes Blue Tail okay. different than some of these other providers? Okay. Yeah. So we haven't finished that. So now we're getting into like, what is the recipe, right? Like what, how do we decide yeah, well, let's try a PRP, which is less invasive, less less expensive versus, yeah, let's do bone marrow. Um, if this is soft tissue, are we going to use adipose, which is a second stem cell source? Um, how do we decide that? Well, it's all just based on experience of 10 to 12 years. But even PRP, for instance, not all PRP is created equal. Is that a safe statement? Yes. So there's high concentration, medium concentration, and low there's, is there high white blood cells or low with it? Um, what's the hematocrit of the fluid? So how many red blood cells are in it? Cause those are pretty inflammatory cells with their heme molecules. Um, all of that matters. Yeah, for sure. I, we, we talk to a fair amount of patients about this cause we do some of these same procedures, um, in the spine. And I try to explain to patients like, look, you know what they're doing at blue tail. They don't have the centrifuge from your high school chemistry class sitting on the back table. And that's how they're spinning your blood down. But that is a hundred percent being done at some clinic locations in this town and in this country, like eBay, simple centrifuge, spin it down and they're injecting it. But what you're using is 
high-tech centrifuges that do exactly what you just mentioned, count the cells and constant, tell you what the concentrations of all these different cells are. Yeah. And you record that so you know when somebody has a good outcome, bad outcome, because you may change your approach. What was the recipe? Yeah. Right. Yeah, we write that down. Yeah, so we, Kara and I were just touring our new lab. So Blue Tail just did, did a lot of construction. We added a fluoro suite, which we'd love to host some friends in. Um, and we added a brand new lab, that's which- me. Yes, it is. Well, and Jeff, we want to host Jeff too. Of course. Um, You're a package deal. It's a double dose. Yes. So we added, really upgraded our lab. So we just were in there this morning and I said, look at this, Kara, there's, there's, how many was it? Four. There's four bone marrow concentration centrifuge machines in one room, which is also just half of our clinic. We have four more in other rooms, but we also had two older PRP centrifuges in, in that same room and there's room, we're gonna put a cell counter in. So this is what's coming next at Blue Tail. So we are way, way into an IDE, investigational drug exemption with the FDA. We've been approved for to do what we do. Part of that though is gonna involve some data and we really need to up our data and we wanna know how many stem cells are going into the patient. And right now we don't have that number. No one does unless you have a cell counter. So that's couple hundred thousand dollar investment. We're going to put one of those in our lab. So every patient that's run, we can say, here's the number going in. And then you can really stratify your data under what is the minimal uh, effective dose. Right. And that can kind of change the industry. You, you mentioned this and let's touch on it. What about the FDA? So the FDA, um, thank you for asking the FDA in 2000 and I want to say 18 put out a uh, edict. I'll say, I'll use that word that kind of was a heads up to anyone doing regenerative medicine saying, all right, you have three years to get your act together. Um, There's a lot, a lot, a lot, like Jeff was talking about in the regenerative sphere everywhere. Um, A lot of um, clinicians doing uh, untoward things. People have been blinded. Uh, There's been some deaths um, you know, uh, just name a bad outcome and it's probably happened. And, um, one of our favorite podcasts, bad batch is all about Livion. Oh yeah. Correct. Yeah. Amazing yeah. podcast. Yeah. yeah Livion. Uh, that's terrifying that that was going on. And so the FDA is trying to clean this up. Thank God. Right. Thank you for doing that. And, um, so in 2018, they said you have I think it was 17 because it was going to expire in 20. They said, you have three years to um, clean it up and no more of this, you know, just willy nilly stuff uh, to put it generally. So then COVID hit and they got a one year exemption. So all these clinics in the country that are just, you know, you know, cash and checks got a one year extension to continue cash and checks during COVID. And so we are one of two, I believe, I believe Chris Centeno has an IDE as well, but there might only be two of us in the country in private practice that have an authorization from the FDA essentially to do what we do. And the FDA, I mean, you know. So what does that mean for all the other clinics offering regenerative services in the form of PRP and stem cell? Well, I think you have to really break it down specifically. Okay, so um, I think if you're gonna say you're doing stem cells, you're probably gonna want one of those things. That's kind of your ticket to operate. It PRP is less clear. I think a lot of people will still be able to do PRP. I mean, look at like the wellness category, right? Look at all these medical spots. Vampire. Exactly. Yeah. Facials. Yeah. 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 I don't really think, I don't know. I can't read the FDA's mind, but I doubt the FDA is going to be shutting that down. I don't know. 
Um, and maybe they should be, I don't know. It's not, I don't have an opinion, but I think now there have been several warning letters sent. Um, there has been some cl high profile clinics shut down in the United States. And I think that will only continue as we get further and further out of hopefully a pandemic. Let's touch on those real quick, because I, I do think it's a really important distinction between what goes on at blue tail and some of these, what bad batch, for instance, and then um, some of these clinics that were let's, shut down in Florida. Yeah. Let's make it easy for people. These procedures are not covered by insurance. Correct. So they're out of pocket expenses for patients who pay cash. And a lot of times that kind of cash payment is more than a, a physician would get in providing any other service. So there is some incentive for people to abuse that kind of situation. Right. And, so, and there was a sucker born every day, as P.T. Barnum said. So correct. people who hurt want to be told that they can stop hurting. Pain is a trillion dollar industry. Yeah. So like in some of the cases where they were blinded in Florida, some of those patients were told, we can, we can give you back your sight by putting stem cells in your eyeballs. I mean, that was one of the cases that was fairly famous. And then, and then Bad Batch or the Le'Veon thing, that's really different. And I think it's important to touch on because patients might be familiar with that, but that was a different product altogether. It was called stem cells, but it wasn't, I mean, some could argue it wasn't stem cells at all. I mean, I think you could say right. that, right? Yeah. yeah. Our amniotic based products don't really have live stem cells in them. Right. We've done an independent study of one of the products and the amnion derived stem cells. So, and again, let's make it easy for listener. Um, certain doctors can buy these on the open market from companies uh, marketed as stem cells. And really that has stopped. Actually, if you pay attention, none of those companies are saying that anymore because they were told not to, but what they were saying is you can get stem cells from the umbilical cord or placenta or other Wharton's jelly, let's say of a healthy C-section donor. And then they were purifying the stem cells, sterilizing them, making sure they weren't an infection Um uh, freezing them. And then you get sent a vial of frozen powder, which was cells. But then when you thaw it and reconstitute it, none of them are alive. So we sent them to a lab and there were just, there were no living cells. And, and this might be in the weeds, but the reason that was so sexy to a lot of providers is because you can have it on the shelf. Patient can walk in the door, you have arthritis, whatever the conversation goes. And I have stem cells right next door you can buy it today before you leave. And it won't hurt you because you know, I'm not drawing blood out of your that's, arm. That's right. I don't have to do that. Marrow. Pesky bone marrow draw. I don't have to do any of that. And just, just write the check and I'll give it to you today. And that's how it was sold in a lot of places and still is sold. But that's very different than what goes on at Blue Tail. Correct. So we are just really big on what we talk, talk about as autologous source cells, which means your own. And anything that's not your own is called allogenic. So, um, are there occasionally that's uses? That's a fancy word, Jeff. I like it. I yeah, do too. Two L's. Two L's. Um, that's not uncommon. Yeah. No, no. Um, so there are some times that we'll use an allogenic source of growth factor, which is really what all those are. You know, growth factors are not alive or dead. They can still be found. Very rarely we'll do that. Let's say like someone has active cancer. Um, if someone has breast cancer, I can't use their bone marrow. Um, so people need to be in remission, complete remission from active cancer before we'll treat them with their own cells because we don't want to take that cancer potentially and put it elsewhere in their body. That would be the only indication for when we'll use growth factors. Um, but that's not a stem cell. So yeah, there's a lot, you know, and there's the, a lot going on. And that's not necessarily regenerative, right? Like growth factors aren't 
per se regenerative as much as they are maybe for Look, pain. Can we or stop? Because the regenerative term actually has come under fire and the use of that um, in clinics. Is that really an accurate reflection of what happens? Is there a better term? Regenerative is sexy. You yeah. know, it sounds great. I'm getting older. I want to keep running five miles a day. My knee is wearing down. I want to make it 20 years old. Yeah. Regenerative is like the Claudia Schiffer of, of, of this sphere or like Cindy Crawford. I totally don't understand your analogy. Jeff does. So. Timeless. Jeff Timeless. does. You said it's sexy. So <laughs> there you go. Okay. That's, Catch up. That's the whole pass. So um, I think a better term is, I think a better term is orthobiologics as opposed to regenerative. So orthobiologics mean, you know, orthopedics, biologic, meaning it's your own body, it's growth factors and stem cells from your own body, whatever your recipe calls for. And, and, and that's the easy term. Regenerative does imply growth, regenerate. Right. But we, so we have this conversation with our knee arthritis patients, right? We're, we're going to probably grow cartilage in your knee and they're very good MRI studies, high field MRI studies that show cartilage growth. But more importantly, we're changing that environment from that uh, inflamed, painful, degenerative condition with tons of like breakdown cytokines and all this stuff floating around really, really bad causes pain. Instead, we're going to flush all that out. And now what we put in your knee is going to upregulate all the good cytokines and growth factors and keep it healthy and pain-free. It's you generate, not EU. EU. Yeah. Right. Really. And I lot, think that's not a lot of EU in English language. No, no. So if I came into the clinic and I was going to have this procedure. I'd be so happy. That would be great. I can't wait to treat you. Thank I, you. I'll you see know, you next Friday. I am. I don't know if I'm we can help you. human problem. specimen of healing right here. Do you have here. a needle that goes from the ear to the brain? Settle, settle, settle. Um, what could I do as a patient to improve my outcomes? Great question. A procedure like this. Because if you're putting out your own money and some people it is a challenge to get there, but they really believe in the science that is being demonstrated by the data coming out now. And they'd prefer that over a surgical procedure. Right. It's the biggest hurdle, right? To money. I mean, I, I, cause I think if For you want- the majority there, are, you know, certainly people who invest in things that may be unnecessary or. There's a lot of patients that if you lined up regenerative medicine or orthobiologics, we should say orthobiologics next to steroids. If all things were considered equal, they would probably say, well, I want to try that first before I try steroid shot. I think that's a fair statement. Very true. I mean, but it's not the world we live in. Right. Unfortunately. Well, what we do is we try to look at, you know, how they're spending their healthcare dollar. And we talk about the relative uh, value of that. And so, uh, you know, for certain people, it is a deal breaker. Absolutely. If they say, I'm going to sell my car to try and get my knee treated, we need to have a different conversation. I mean, um, we also have payment programs. We take care credit, like all that whole area we can talk about. But to answer your question, um, I have them focus on their own health. So um, one of the things I've done a lot uh, with my patients is address their BMI. And so, so in, in many ways, the BMI question comes up and data may not necessarily support that being obese can affect certain orthopedic conditions, which astounds me. So I, I have to look critically at that data. So you find that to be 
maybe a primary consideration for patients or does it obviously depend on the joint or condition? Yeah, weight-bearing joints for sure um, is depends the most. But here's an interesting factor. I'm going to contradict myself. Our own data showed that BMI is not an independent predictor of poor outcome. So right. kind of exactly what you're saying. But I do know that every time you go downstairs, six times your body weight goes through your knee in force. So if your body weight's less, there's less force going through your joint. It's not like a big stretch to realize that that'll hurt less. You know what I mean? Right. But I also... If I see a patient who's obese and they have a goiter and they're, they have some acanthosis nigricans or some like shading in the skin, which is an indication. He is fancy. I know. I thought circumcision was a big word, but oh, Mr. Navy man. (laughs) Let's, uh, let's, Let's back up. If they have some pigmentation in their skin from high insulin. I'm not editing this. I'm letting you use your big words. Fancy. Yeah. Excuse me. I'm all out. I'd have no more after this. Orthobiologic. So if they have indications that they're in a type two diabetic state, that's not been diagnosed because they have some shading from the high insulin in their body. If they have a goiter, which tells me their hypothyroid condition is not being treated. And frankly, I think our primary care colleagues are under treating the low thyroid. I agree. Horribly. I I mean, it's like Kara, you're going to be a resident in a, uh, you know, half a year, get on a crusade. Give everyone Synthroid. <laughs> Synthroid should yes. be the new Ritalin. Let's put it out there. Um, so anyway, you know, I will actually send them to some colleagues that I have who can address those issues. I've had a lot of conversations with people saying, look, here's our cost for what I can do for your knee or hip. But why don't you take that same, roughly same amount, go to a different provider and have her address the whole body. And that, you know, once you get that kind of ball rolling from the wrong direction and rolling it in the right direction of here, now my thyroid's adjusted. Wow, look at this. I have better energy. I'm sleeping better. Um, My relationships are better. My knees hurt less because guess guess what? I've lost weight, Um, you know, and then they come back to me a year later. And if they have still have knee pain and they still have arthritic knees, now let's talk about your knees. So, so if someone comes in and they've flown in on their private plane, I might do it concurrently and say, let's treat your knees, but I really want you to see this colleague of mine. But if they don't have a private plane and that's really a big deal for them to take cash and pay for medical procedures, I'd rather they go to the whole body specialist as opposed to me. So that's one thing that they can do. Also the, the simple stuff like, holy cow, get hydrated, you know, and more an acute question. Like I just saw a, a, a gentleman in the main lobby here um, walking in who I'm going to treat next week and uh, great backstory on him. And, and he said, I'm going to see you next Friday. I'm doing stem cells. And I said, hydrate up, drink water. You know, I don't, I want you to eat breakfast. I want you to, there's no fasting involved. Like, please feel well. And when you're hydrated, that bone marrow draw is so easy. And if you're dehydrated, it's just harder. So long answer. I don't give any short answers. No, I like Ask me some one word answers. Blue. (laughs) Why don't you incorporate that whole body approach in your own clinic? That seems like a natural and appropriate consideration. No. Okay. (laughs) <laughs> that's my one word answer. No. I mean, I'm not asking, I don't think it's something So let's that delve all, into this. Yeah. All people should do it, but that yeah. why wouldn't you have why a nurse have? or some other? We will. Okay, good. So Dr. David Crane is a dreamer. He's my partner who is like Yoda of orthobiologics. 
I mean that in a good way. I just made you laugh, but I tell him this, but he doesn't speak kind of backwards like Yoda does. Sudanese. Hmm. Pain gone. (laughs) No. So Dave is taller than that. Yes, he is barely, but yes, but he wears fishing jackets. Um, Dave has a dream to create a functional medicine clinic arm of blue tail. And we're really close to getting a provider to man that. And, um, that's the answer. Why not keep it in house really? Cause then we're all on the same team. Well, you know, people are invested in making those outcomes from your procedures, the best that they can be. Right. And improving and patient outcomes. Patients are happier. That'll keep the ball rolling. Yeah. I love functional medicine. I, I've told many people had I had it, that opportunity when I was training. Holy cow. That's I don't exactly, think I heard that word until probably less than five years ago. Yeah, it was, I think I went to a um, functional nutrition course in Boston and that it was awful. Did it was like great. Granola bars. No, like, it was great. Cause I, gosh, I don't, me? I'm the world's worst. Inflammatory pay. things in those granola bars. Yeah, I, Seaweed. Hand, I hand out my anti-inflammatory diet to people all the time. I would prefer anything but traditional pharmaceuticals. Yeah, I agree. Uh, and isn't that the pathway that we are all on? Right. Is get this out of big pharma's hands and, and let people heal themselves. Absolutely. And give people power over their own recovery. Right. It's a hard sell. It is because it's easier to take the pill that you know works in this period of time than to as I share with Jeff, I used to have a little saying for patients, you know, if I could offer you a pill that if you took it and it took 30 minutes to swallow it, I mean, you did that and I guarantee you would feel better in three months, would you do it? And not one person ever said no. But, and then I said, it's just exercise. Right. If you could just make yourself move 30 minutes a day and that's easy if you think about it. Yeah. But no, exercise is a scary word for people. I'd be interested in the suppository form of that. I'm sure. Does that take 30 minutes? <laughs> That'd be the only way I'd be interested. So if a patient comes into your clinic, what questions should they ask a clinic if they are going to, what what questions would patients ask to know that they're in the right place? So for example, should they ask about how you collect your samples and how you centrifuge or how many of these procedures you do or what are those critical questions? So if I went to three people in town who are offering to inject my knee, how do I pick out the best group or a group that at least I know is trained enough to offer me a good option in outcomes? Yeah, I would, gosh, I would want to know the background of the doctor. Like how long have you been doing it? You know, and that's a hard question for a patient to ask and not sound, you know, you don't want to make your doctor angry. Which, right. why would that make that the doctor angry? But yeah, some, that might be a sign that your doctor, yeah, yeah, if your doctor sure. gets angry, leave. Yeah, I agree. A hundred percent agree. When I send patients to a specialist, I always say you're interviewing the doctor. You realize this, right? Like, like they are kind of checking your joint out to see if you're qualified for surgery. But if you get a bad vibe, you are out that door. I would no say problem. second opinions should never offend physicians. No, absolutely not. It should only reinforce that you're confident in your decision. Right. So I, um, you know, I think an easy way to ask it is, you know, what, what do you plan on doing for me? And how can I ask how many, 
these done and what do you think of your own outcomes? You know what I mean? Like, does the protocol after the procedure make a difference between, because some, I mean, you, you obviously have alluded to a protocol for recovery, but some physicians have nothing. They offer their patients nothing. And to me, I think you miss an opportunity to improve what you're doing for the patient. Yeah. Oh, 100%. So we are looking at functional movement scores uh, and outcomes with corrective exercises. So what we found is that, you know, simple functional movement screen with um, a 13 point scale really easily done in our clinic by some of our specialists. And then we treat our patient and they're doing corrective exercises the whole time. When we see them in follow-up, their scores on their functional movement screen are so much better and their outcomes get better. And I, and regardless of diagnosis, it could be low back pain. It could be shoulder pain, hip, knee, ankle, whatever. So finding out how much experience your physician has, finding out protocols afterwards, finding out how they evaluate you for the right concoction. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. How do you decide on your recipe? Also, like we haven't even mentioned the word ultrasound yet, I don't think. And, and that's huge. Like, can I see what the problem is doctor? And, and, you know, if they're just like saying, push your arm up and, Oh, does that hurt? Yes. And you got this uh, junky MRI from two years ago with a low Tesla image and it barely shows the rotator cuff, much less what the problem is. Why not just use an ultrasound and show the patient real time? By the way, you got two arms. Let's show them what your good row tear cuff looks like so we can all evaluate that. And then here's your partial tear or full tear and what does it look like and how does it move? So we're very big into real-time diagnostic uh, ultrasound. That has changed medicine. That is the stethoscope of 2015 and beyond. I agree. I don't think people will carry stethoscopes anymore at some point. What do you think, Kara? Kara is going into family medicine. So for a while you need the stethoscope. Don't listen to him. It hasn't been replaced. I think initially the stethoscope will be important, but in sports medicine or orthopedics. Well, there's only one place you have to put it. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, what, what about bowel sounds, right? It's like, really? Well, isn't that the joke? You stick the stethoscope oh, yeah, in, the one, in the middle of the chest. Yeah. You can hear the heart, the lungs, and the abdomen at the same time. And by the way, uh, I was always good at like systolic versus diastolic, but after that, I'm out. Like high pitch, early. Like, come on, their heart rate's like 95, especially in pediatrics. I was like, oh, really? Okay. Can you slow that down by about 40%? Maybe I'll hear that murmur. Have you ever been on a, have you ever been on a flight when there's an emergency and they ask for a doctor on board? We talked about this this So uh, you can't hear anything. I mean, and they have the cheapest stethoscopes anyway. They actually did a nice study. They're going to stop asking for assistance on planes from, because they reroute more flights when they ask for professional help in flight if there's an emergency. So they can call ground and get direction from an ER physician who will tell them what to do that keeps more flights in the air and the outcomes for patients are better. Because you have people who are anxious. Maybe, you know, I remember being on an over the seas flight, international flight, and they called for physicians. I, of course, waited and they called again and again. I went back there and it was a a female physician who was absolutely having a panic attack. And I don't know how that was going to be helpful for anybody, but that kind of help you don't need. Oh, the helper was having a panic attack. Yeah. The helper who was just escalating and I'm like, settle down. Right. They're still breathing. I've only been on like, um, diabetic issues, like low or high blood sugar, you know, and usually low and 
you know, thank God. But I, I was talking to the flight attendant and, and they always give like free drinks after everything's fine. Oh yeah. And I was like, oh, I just don't, I don't know if I can have a drink right now. Like, <laughs> Just God. fake your injury yeah. on the flight <laughs> so you can get a drink now. Right. They don't have those anymore. Uh, not much. Uh, what is the future of regenerative medicine? Where do you think we can improve um, in the field? And what do you see happening? I think the sky is the limit really. Cause if you look I'm focused only on orthopedics, um, but the everything outside of orthopedics is really taking off as well. I mean, all of these like MD Anderson and Mayo and Stanford, all these wonderful universities are doing amazing research on regenerating the beta cells in the pancreas in a diabetic. I mean, are you kidding me? Um, you name a condition and there's research going on with stem cells. So the validity and the kind of like, you know, is this a real thing is long been answered. Yes, absolutely. And all the research is happening um, specifically to orthopedics. What's the future of, you know, orthobiologics, regenerative medicine. I think we're really going to be able to streamline who we can help and who we can't. So we'll have way fewer hits and or swings and misses is what I call them. So the, the odd patient that comes back and says, boy, doc, that didn't help. That is an awful thing to have happen to the patient and me. And it still happens about 10% of the time we have what we call a treatment failure. And that's um, acceptable. I think, I think 10% isn't bad, but I want my number way closer to zero because I already turned patients away. So what happened in that 10% of like, why didn't that work? You know what I mean? Or expand your successes your measure of success is actually elevated from your current level of success. Oh, sure. And my first answer was, is the patient happy or not? But then, yeah, you can delve into the, yes, are you happy? Okay. Let's talk about your function, right? Have you been able to sleep on your side without pain yet? Well, I'm a lot better. Well, no, no, no. I want your pain gone. Like that would be elevate your success. So we, will you ever under FDA uh, limits be able to hate to use this word, but manipulate that environment more to provide for an increase in that regenerative potential. Can we really, do we see the ability to really give you that younger knee and not just a recovered knee? Right. Um, so you're really asking me to predict the whimsy of the FDA. Not the whimsy of the FDA, but is there anything in the future? Are there are there thoughts or um, ideas being thrown around now on how to do that? How to actually create a regenerated environment, regenerate back to a level of youth or new or uninjured? I think the key anti -degenerated. is- Anti-degenerated. Yeah, the key is- I think the number of stem cells. So we're going down that path, right? With the cell count and, you know, that research is being done, but how do you get more? You have to culture expand. So what you have to do is draw the patient's blood or marrow, plate those cells on auger and grow them and culture expand them and then take that product and put it in the joint. So you're talking about like, 10 times more cells than we can give now. And that's currently not allowed in the United States. So that's why these clinics have popped up in Tijuana and Honduras and um, Venezuela, um, you know, the Bahamas. Is that, is that similar to what say Peyton Manning or some of the high level Kobe, uh, they went to Germany and they had similar procedures overseas. Is that what they were probably getting? 
actually they weren't. They were getting a thing called Regenekine, which is really interesting. So th- that's a great example of word of mouth medicine, right? So when Kobe does it and he likes his outcome, every high level athlete wants exactly the recipe that Kobe got. So I can tell you about that. So there's a doctor in, um, I think it is Stuttgart, Germany near there and the Regenekine Institute. And all that is, is drawing a patient's blood, activating the mast cells by plating the blood on glass beads for four hours uh, or longer, but you can do four hours here in the United States. And that um, activates mast cells to release IRAP, interleukin receptor antagonist protein. So what IRAP does is block the bad thing going on in the knee. There's an IL-1 beta. And so that is a really pro-inflammatory cytokine. It causes pain. It causes swelling, causes dysfunction. If you can block the receptor for that and not allow it to work, that causes less pain, less swelling, better function. That's called IRAP. Regenekine is simply IRAP. And so for a long time, that was not allowed in the United States. And it it pretty much is allowed now, which is never something you want to hear, right? Pretty much is. We got it from veterinarians. Racehorses are IRAP machines. Racehorses take baths in IRAP, essentially. And in fact, this is a good thing to say to the listeners. Most of what we know in regenerative orthopedics or orthobiologics is coming from veterinarians with these X number of million of dollars of, of racehorses, right? There is no FDA. There is no limit. And these are horses can't complain, right? So they do all of these things and they're not inhumane at all, but they're trying to maximize the speed of those joints and minimize the pain. So they've been able to push the limits and that's where we got stem cells from. And uh, like people's labs were getting stem cells in their hips for years before any human got them. And, and that was just based on a femoracetabular impingement condition of genetic hips and labs. Humans have that too. And now we can do that. Um, so I think IRAP is what Kobe got. And so all of these players just like, like Peyton Manning got in his cervical spine. And we kind of just, I don't want to say we chuckle. We're not arrogant about it, but like people are flying to Dusseldorf and getting, you know, a treatment that is available right here. Chesterfield, Missouri. (laughs) But Dusseldorf sounds cooler. I do like that name. Two S's. Yeah, lots of those. Herford, it's time for our favorite part of the podcast. I love this part. It's time for Getting Hammered with Dr. Matt Bays. Wow, this is a life goal. So, Dr. Bays, the point of Getting Hammered, five questions. These are top of mind answers. Don't think about it. Just spit it out. Just answer it. Are you ready? And we'll make fun of you later. I'm going to close my eyes. Okay. All right. Are you ready to get hammered? Is it, am I in a hurry? Is there a time limit? I mean, reasonable time. Okay. Okay. But it's not like there's a ticking clock. Oh, gosh. 10 seconds. Okay. All right. Nope. Nope. I get it. First response. All right. All right. Favorite city in the United States besides the one you live? San Diego. That's a great answer. Why? I used to live there. And and as I alluded to earlier, when I lived there, I felt like I was always either on call or pre-call or post-call. And so I never really got to relax and let my guard down. So when I go vacation there with my family now, I feel like I'm a tourist for the first time. 
That's awesome. Were you married when you were? Yep. There yeah. We had our first, first our first child was born there and uh, we lived in a little tiny house we rented and then we moved into an apartment building and we would go to the beach together, my wife and I, and I would just fall asleep because <laughs> I was fun. tired. Is I remember the fondly those early days in medicine. They really are the fun ones. So you're working your hiney off and it is just, they're just some good memories. My worst story is I remember being so tired post-call driving home that I would be excited to come to a red light because I could close my eyes and fall asleep, but I would crack one of my eyelids so that when the brake light in front of me went stopped, you know, when it would turn off, I would open my eyes again. That's amazing. I just remember. I wouldn't recommend it. Not good. Milk in a newspaper Sunday mornings because you had a whole day to recover <laughs> after call. Question number two. If your house is on fire, what two things would you go back and get? Not including family and pets. I was just going to say, I have, th uh, I have three, three kids, kids, a wife, I'll take two. three kids, a wife and a dog. Wow. Pick them. Sophie's choice here. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's hard. You're going to hate my answer. Cause I'm not like some guys are car guys. Some guys are toys or boats or anything like that. I'm a complete dork. Like I have a good uh, record collection, like, but yeah. I don't have a thing that I love. I have like, I'm an experienced guy. So like, would I rather have a nice new watch or would I rather go to that concert and actually get good seats? I would rather get good seats at a concert. So my answer is probably my record collection, which is a lame answer. That is Cause lame. with Spotify, you can just download it. How about what other things would you grab? You get two things. We'll allow that as one. Your t-shirt um, from that great concert you went to. I like my, I, I like my patio set. My, my favorite feature of my house is my outdoor <laughs> patio. So I would want to get my patio set. So I'd be like running with like a outdoor couch. <laughs> I got to go back. I got to get the Like ottoman. this is us. You remember Did the you this get is the us lounge? When the, when the dad <laughs> goes cheeks. in to get the dog, I'd be like coming out with like a lounge <laughs> and like a sofa. Honey, fend for yourself. I'm coming through. <laughs> I got to somebody roll my big green egg around the front. <laughs> Oh my goodness. <laughs> Tyler, get the hammock. <laughs> this is almost like Buffalo here. <laughs> Seriously. Okay. Um, that was a bad answer. That was a great answer because we're going to laugh about it. Question number three. What's your favorite movie ever? Blazing Saddles. Oh, that's a good that answer. A good that's one. a great. And it's even more my favorite now because it shouldn't be. Do you get let your kids watch Blazing Saddles with you yet? Um, I, I will, I haven't. So I have a almost 19, almost 17 and almost nine. So the eight year old's out. Right. But, right. but my son who is irreverent and really just found blink 182 Oh, and blink 182 is probably the maturity level that I aspire to, you know, which is like <laughs> 14. Um, I was just thinking this the other day because I was listening to a podcast podcast, about uh, what's my age again, the Blink-182 song. And he was, the, the guy started the podcast talking about the scene in Blazing Saddles where they're on the campfire and they're all passing gas. And he's like, how funny do you think this scene is? The There's a correlation between how funny you think the scene is and how much you love Blink-182. Perfect correlation. And I thought to myself, it's time for me to watch Blazing Saddles with Tyler because he would get it. Yeah. Because it's completely objectionable and, you know, needed to be cleaned up, but it is what it is. That scene in Lion King and Matt's walked his son and it is time. Mufasa. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh. <laughs> the 
big Warner Brothers logo. Comes All I on. saw was you holding the Chase Lounge above your head there. <laughs> Question number four. If you could have any superpower, what would it be? Uh, cloak of invisibility. That's a fantastic, amazing answer, Jeff. <laughs> all these, all these in fairness matter. They are based on of whatever Herford's very first answer the first time we did this. And what was it that you said? You wanted to be able to speak every language. And understand every language. Speaking on, and I said not super speaking. Sudanese. Not anything. And she goes, no, I just like to be able to speak and understand all the languages. <laughs> and I was like, you don't even have to be, have a superpower to do that. No, you study. Yeah. I guess that would take a superpower now. Isn't it funny though? Now that we're out of medical education, it is really hard to go study something. It is, but we're so much better at it. Like yeah, you, we would have spent so much time doing what you're doing. And like, if I had to study for boards again, I bet I would be way more efficient. Yeah. Efficiency. Correct. Question number five. If you could be any animal, what would you be? flying squirrel. <laughs> oh it boy. really does fit him. Yeah, kind of. I like That's- to be able to climb a tree like upside down with hanging on by your hands and feet. But then when you get to the top, you're just like, screw it. I'm going to jump. You're a glider. You're not so even really flying. We tra- thought about this yesterday, Karen and I, because I had a patient who um, started her visit with a security concern that we spoke of and ended her visit showing us pictures of her pet raccoons and how they eat lunch with her. And she also has a pet, uh, stinky skunk. Um, and I said, what if the skunk gets angry? And she said, Oh no, you take it to the vet and they remove the glands. And then she made it a point of saying, don't tell anyone that. Cause the vet would get that in is trouble. Like PETA would go after I you. Know, it's like, like decline your cat. So it, it reminded me of another patient I've had who used to show me pictures of her flying squirrels and they would jump from the top of the stairs and they would glide down into the family She kept room. them in the house. Yes. I'm not kidding you. I'm not kidding you. These are my people. So this, like Kara's rotation has just been one like head shaker after another. Oh my goodness. These are my people. Well, Kara's new life. She's going to, people eat squirrels for dinner and they don't keep them as pets. Have you ever had squirrel? No, it's I don't eat meat. Bad. Yeah, she doesn't. I eat haven't. Meat. But here's the thing: she doesn't you don't eat meat. meat but she's no. not like a real. Tell I'm him why. Real tell him why you're a vegetarian or a pescatarian, technically. So because, you eat fish. No, because my youngest decided she wasn't going to eat any meat products except <laughs> when she was four. She said she wasn't going to be a meat eater except for ham, bacon, and something else. I started laughing. And when she was maybe 12, she gave up um, meat products. So I did too. She went back to it and no. Now ask her for what her favorite meal is. A uh, hamburger by far. <laughs> I would, but I'm we, just but waiting for that. Long? Yeah. I'm just waiting for that perfect hamburger, that perfect smell. And when I hear it, smell it, I'll be able to give it up. Let's again. go right now. We could be done in 15 minutes. <laughs> Roll around in it. <laughs> it just makes me laugh every time. I'm just like, God, you're not even a real vegetarian. You did it for your daughter. You're not, you don't care about the oh welfare of the animal. Yeah. My I, dog I, don't, I wish I had that kind of, yeah, I don't know. My little eight year old was cracking eggs with her grandma a couple weeks ago and a chicken embryo came out of the eggshell. And so Josie has sworn off scrambled eggs. I'm like, I'll give you that. Like that's gross. Yeah. (laughs) That's a turning point. She said the, the, the fluid that came out of the egg wasn't 
it was bloody and then a little body Aww. dropped out. <laughs> I felt bad for it. <laughs> I still eat eggs though. <laughs> Poor Jeff over there. He's going to die. <laughs> On that <Whoa>. note. <laughs> well, we'd like to thank Dr. Matthew Bays for joining us. And, and Kara. And Kara, who and Kara. we had to turn her mic off. She was talking she so much today. She talks way too much. But we'd love to thank Dr. Bays. Appreciate this time. Until next time, Dr. Trish. And Jeff Todd. 